everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And today we are celebrating Remembrance Day. Do you uh, celebrate Remembrance Day? We are Day? remembering, we for are sure. remembering Remembrance yeah. Day. And a tricky one this year because no one's allowed to have exactly. ceremonies. There aren't allowed like to be that. services uh, for church services or cenotaph services. So, uh, and, and I think that is really a huge part of military heritage and military culture and uh and obviously part of canada's uh culture so but we have a very special guest here with us today yeah to help us remember remembrance day uh we have the host of the let your soul talk podcast mr (laughs) canar bell yeah uh he is here with us and actually Uh, As many of our listeners will know, we did a special little live show last week on Thursday at Pickford and Black. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much to everybody who came and came out to see us. And yeah, and so Kanar will be there this week. And uh, the Minute Women, we are going to pop down and uh, see the show. And uh, yeah, so without further ado... Mr. Kenar Bell. Yay. Thank you. The Minute Women Podcast. I can't believe this. <laughs> no, no, no. This is awesome. Thank you for shout out. By the way, there's going to be some amazing guests there. So if you can come out, definitely do. You know, good food, good, good music, food. right? Cheap drinks. Some good oh. soul talk, right? Cheap drinks. There for you go. Sure. Yeah. The best fries. We discovered the, <laughs> yeah. we the, discovered best fries. the loaded fries the other night. Yeah. And they are all Haligonians. Chef's kiss. Yeah. I think it's like a secret. It's like... A sweet little secret that people don't know about, yeah. but the fries at Pickford and Black are like the Prime. best fries I've had in Halifax, I yep. think, up there. Excellent. So do you want to tell our audience a little bit about what your podcast is about, Kadar? For sure. So um, I'm wearing many hats, but the one that has resonated with my community the most is being a spoken word artist, you know, and that's how I tell stories through, you know, creative expression, stories, real stories, you know, that... um mirror the lives of real people and just, you know, the journeys of self-discovery. So that's what Soul Talk is about. And it's all about bringing like young leaders together, creatives, you know, young young people, whoever it might be, just to let their soul talk, let everybody know where they are in that present moment of time, like what they're learning personally, because I think those are important stories to share. And then we just unpack that. So they'll do like a little bit of creative writing, even if they don't usually do that. And then we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll receive it. And it's amazing because I wouldn't even expect for some of these people to write like that, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is going to be amazing. So I, I form a discussion around that and then we just unpack it. We laugh, you know, and we just have a good time. It's oh. just that soul talk. You That's know, awesome. So. Yeah. That's amazing. That's mm-hmm. very cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's fun. So I felt that, well, other than it being Remembrance Day, the fact that we have Kunar on the podcast, I thought that it would only be appropriate to do, I think the only Heritage Minute that is based on a poem which is oh. the In Flanders Field, John yeah. McRae Heritage yeah. Minute. So yeah. A beautiful poem. Beautiful Very poem. Very yeah, yeah, it, it hits in yeah. a certain way. <laughs> like, yeah. And I don't know how much of the poem, like, uh, of, it, of its impact is based on what you already bring to the table. Like, I think everybody already has opinions about the First World War and everybody already has sentimentality right. surrounding the events that the poem discusses. Like, do you mean at the time he wrote the poem, everybody already had these? Or do you mean, like, now? I, I think at the time, but even now, yeah. like, I think everybody ha- knows some kind of World War One story. And I think the more you learn about that event, the more that poem means. Right. And so it's... The, the poem itself is really quite simple and is quite short. And as we go into it, it took him like 20 minutes to write. Yeah. Um, Bless. Yeah. Bless him. Yeah. <laughs> Bless him. And so... He's also a doctor. 
He's also right? a doctor. Amazing. Like he's not a poet yeah. by career. Yeah. Um, though he did write a lot of poetry throughout his life because okay. he's, you know, a Renaissance man, yeah. turn of the century Victorian gentleman. He's got yeah. he wears many hats. Yeah. Um, but go. yeah. So we're gonna talk about John McRae's life. Spoiler alert, uh, stories about the First World War are not particularly happy. Not particularly um, happy. Especially when they result in you writing one of the most somber poems that I think most people are aware of. It's a pretty <laughs> prolific poem. I mean, I, I... Prolific's a good word. Yeah, I... It was a huge part of every Remembrance Day service that I've ever been a part of. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, even through school, like, I remember when I was in high school, I recited it, like, two years over the, over, like, the PA speaker. It's Ooh. just such a... I know, I'm <laughs> fancy. You know, that's crazy. I had a, I had a memory before coming here in Flanders Field, and I remember, like, actually doing something when I was in maybe elementary school, like, coloring something about the poem, like, trying to represent the poem like it being a school assignment. So, like, it's, they feed it into the curriculum, right? Yeah, very much so. I think it's one we've talked about on this podcast before, how education across the country is so different, especially when it comes to learning about geography and learning about history, because I think they try to make it more regionally relevant, maybe. that became very Um, clear to us when we did a couple of the Prairie episodes, because we had no idea about this part of the country yeah and the any of our listeners or friends from uh from winnipeg were just like oh my god louis riel and we were like like, you don't know and i was like i didn't (laughs) but i do think in flanders field is one thing that is across the entire country like yeah. It's always kind of fed oh. into the curriculum. 100%. Not in a bad way, but like... No, no. Yeah. and I mean, I can only speak for like Nova Scotia school curriculum, but it seems fairly... I mean, when you look at like programs on Remembrance Day and uh, and events over the country and like news, it, it just seems to be a fairly well-known and, uh, and remembered poem. Yeah, so. and it's accessible. Like, yeah. I don't think it bogs itself down in trying to be more than what it is. I no. think it is a very honest reflection of, of someone's feelings in a yeah. moment and those feelings happened to be ones that transcended his yeah. own firsthand experience. Well, and it's the fact that, I mean, and I'm sure we're going to unpack this some more, but it's the fact that it's a poem about people dying, about death. Like, that's something mm-hmm. that everybody deals with like at some point like so it really doesn't I mean it resonates obviously with anyone who has like fought in I mean that war in World War One or like world um wars after that rather but uh but I think that it also just kind of relates and resonates on a on a level of you know loss yeah for sure so we're gonna learn all about the man who wrote the poem and his famous words that we know let's do it is he a heritage minute hottie John McRae yeah um He's not bad looking. I, okay. I wouldn't. You look, looked at him. He's, he's not in like. He's not in my top. He's not like three. Penfield. No, he's no yeah. Penfield. Okay. He's no Penfield. He's no Tommy Prince. <sighs> like Tommy Prince. Tommy Prince is very good. Tommy looking. Prince, nice arms. Very nice arms. Very nice. <laughs> Do we have an image? Okay, John McRae. He's not I bad see looking. All right, Renaissance man. It's oh, all right. Yeah. It's all oh right. yeah. He's got some. He's got a very nice jawline. Oh, and Grace, you that. love a man with a good jawline. Oh. I do. Thank you for sharing <laughs> all of my secrets. I'm not embarrassed at all right now. <laughs> uh, so John McRae was born on November 30th, 1872 in Guelph, Ontario. Okay. His father was Lieutenant Colonel David McRae and his mother was Janet Simpson Eckerford. And John was the grandson of Scottish immigrants. So okay. he's like a second generation Canadian. Cool. 
His older brother, Thomas, would go on to become a professor of medicine at John Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore, Maryland, and his younger sister, Giles, Giles? <laughs> <laughs> the Scottish, you know, they have funny yeah. spellings for names, but... Get creative with it. You know. Yeah. yeah I Julia. Just, I just think the G is almost, the G is almost silent, like Heather. <laughs> Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, his little sister, Stephanie, would marry uh-huh. James F. Kilgore, which... That's a great name. That's a, that's a name I want. That's a great name for a guy who probably was in World War One. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> like though. A Bond name, like Bond it villain is. level. Kilgore. Kilgore. Yeah, I'd cross the street for sure. I'd go the other way. Yeah, before <laughs> I went and hung out with he Mr. Exclusively Kilgore. Exclusively wears trench coats <laughs> and sunglasses <laughs> at night. Um, Mr. Kilgore was a justice of the court of the King's Bench, and they lived in Winnipeg. Oh, very nice. So, you know, his family's quite successful. Yeah. They're quite upper middle class people. Yeah. As children, all three McRae kids were educated in Guelph. John was a member of the Guelph Highland Cadet Corps, and in 1887, he earned a gold medal as the best drill cadet in Ontario. John was also a bright student. In 1888, at the age of 16, he became the first Guelph student awarded a University of Toronto scholarship. As an undergraduate at the university's Knox College, so Knox is like Presbyterian, okay. Presbyterians, he was a diligent student and devoted churchgoer, but also found time to write poetry and remain active in both the Guelph militia um, with his friend Stephen Leacock, who is a famous humorist who is also featured in our John Humphrey episode. He was like John oh, Peter Humphrey's yeah. like good buddy at McGill. His pal. Yeah. yeah. So this cool. guy, yeah. this guy has been in two Heritage Minutes, but never As had the one friend. of his own. <laughs> what does he no. do? <laughs> he's a funny guy. Like okay. he's like, I do bits. I do comedy. I do. But is like, he also a doctor? No, he was like a university professor. Okay. He did like political cartoons. Okay. So he's the original Chronicle Herald guy. Oh, uh, Michael <laughs> Deatter. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love Michael Deatter. Very good. He Very just funny. did an Alex Trebek cartoon on oh. today, and I just got sad because... Not to add another thing to the sadness oh. of today, but... I'm not over it. No. It's so sad. Mm. Yeah. I saw him from a distance once. Really? Yeah, really? Work, Oh, that's cool. At the Fortress of Lewisburg. Yeah. The Amazing. New York Times uh, editorial cartoon uh, was Alex Trebek, and then it was like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Kobe and uh, uh, Chadwick. Um, mm, Chad, uh, oh, Chaswick Bowman. Yeah, yeah, and it was like they were doing, and then it was Alex Trebek, and they were like around clouds and stuff. And it's just like, oh, make me cry. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, for sure. It's definitely been a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the understatement of, of 2020. The <laughs> <laughs> it's been a year. Yeah. What are we going to do, you know? What are we going to do? do? What can you do? <laughs> so, McRae excelled in biology under supervision of his professor, uh, Ramsey Wright, earning highest marks in his second year. Mm -hmm. In third year, he slipped to second place uh, due to his chronic asthma, which was worsening in the city smog. Dude, this is my brother. This is my man. This is, you have a- This is, I have the chronic asthma. He (laughs) has the chronic asthma. You have a natural affinity for John McRae. Yeah. (laughs) 
We're, uh, yeah, we're one of the same. I also like that he's complaining about city smog in the year 1880, <laughs> right? 1890. Yeah. It's like, I can't imagine what smog would be like. Like, imagine how pristine the countryside used to be yeah. for you to go to a city in the 1890s and be like, there's so much yeah, smog. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I guess you'd probably have industrial factories downtown. Well, in I was thinking coal. Guelph. Coal right? There'd bad. be a that's lot true. of coal. Um, so he's studying yeah. in... Toronto. He's studying in Toronto. So yeah, there'd be a lot of coal and like trains and that's true. So it wouldn't be it's not really smog. It's more like it's more I like, grew up in black like black clouds. I grew up <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Oshawa and that was okay. like I'd say the main you know, the main job that most people like worked at, General Motors, right? There was oh, a job that yeah. like powered the city, right? So yeah. I was trying to compare, you know, as if to having like a big like factory with subsidiaries right. you know, yeah. around the city if that would compare. But I don't know, 1980, I wasn't. I now I'm only envisioning like London in a Christmas carol. Oh, yeah. Just like <laughs> the plumes of like smoke that children work in. Yeah. That's now what I'm getting. And I'm like, maybe yeah. that is what Toronto was like. Maybe. Probably not that far off. <laughs> Probably not. Meanwhile, he was also still active in the military. So okay. he's studying away. He also has asthma and he's still in the military. What a guy. In 1893, he was training to be an artilleryman at the Tete de Pont Barracks, today Fort Frontenac in Kingston, Ontario. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. I'm also wondering what he was given to like help with asthma. Like I'm wondering, cause oh, I just think now, was? like I know Ventolin wasn't invented then and that's like the main drug for yeah. like asthma users. So I'm just, I have a feeling there probably wasn't. It's probably medicated. just like, it was probably just like, um, well, cold air, they would tell you. Yeah. So like go outside at night, which they still like when I was a kid, like they'd be like, just go sit outside. Um, yeah. but oh, also man. like, but also <laughs> like go in like a hot shower, yeah. like just the, right. just anything like that to, to kind of like help, up. help break it up. But, uh, but yeah, that sucks. Yeah, because I, I know yeah. we've done a number of these, especially when the subject of the minute has a bit more money. Yeah. They usually just tell them whenever it's some kind of either a physical or mental issue. Yeah. They're just like, just like take a break. Like yeah. just go leave for like yeah. a year and yeah. like figure it out and then come back to us. Yeah. And in some ways, like, I mean, it seems like they're just pushing you off. But, like, also, that's probably not a bad piece of advice. It's probably what you needed. <laughs> that's true, though. If yeah. you had the money to do that, yeah. just, like, go to the countryside for a bit. And that'll probably help your lungs yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I had all the money, I'd go to, like, Iceland. And I'd probably... It, it was even crazy. Like, just being in the British Virgin Islands mm-hmm. um, last winter, uh, my asthma and my allergies were, like, the best they'd ever been. Just oh, really? being in that climate, being in, like, a temperate like non-changing climate on the ocean like it was it was insane like you find salt air helps uh i don't know i grew up on salt air and i still have asthma so (laughs) when i watch american (laughs) medical commercials that are like look salt water drops it'll cure any cold that's i'm like i live next to that yeah i get sick it doesn't (laughs) like i still Mm. get sick yeah, I don't know. And it is weird. I mean, just even knowing how much things have advanced for like, because my asthma is like pretty severe. Like I, my lungs are smaller than they should be. And so I've like had it since I was a baby. But uh, just even knowing how much things have advanced since I was little, mm-hmm. just like, oh, I just feel so bad for this guy. Got so much sympathy for him. So much. He's having sympathy. a rough go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. On that same note. Sorry, I have to drop this. No, please do. Um, just in terms of like your your, your struggles with asthma, yeah. you, you know what I mean. And like, um, 
I think there was a very important cure that's being for delivered COPD. for COPD. So is it uh, cystic fibrosis. Oh uh, yeah, uh, not well, no. cystic fibrosis and uh, and like COPD. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, what is the drug called? Um, My bad. Because Jeremy from uh, Sick Boy Podcast shared the news oh, last night and like broke down and like oh. Jeremy yeah. is I've like met him at um one summer nights fundraisers and things and he's just super lovely yeah and uh to just like see how just like oh just like the relief of like knowing that there so it's a there drug a that drug yeah. well it, it's a, no it, the drug exists it just hasn't been accessible to Canadians yes oh I see so I see. it's that it's now going to be accessible to Trakafta Canadians yeah Tricafta like you should look at the is. just the joy you know just on the like, Look at, of like celebrating yeah, so there's a breakthrough a, in medicine. Yeah, you know? so if you oh. look up Trichafta, there's this really cool kind of like Skype call happening with a bunch of people who have cystic fibrosis. And uh, and and just the picture just like, I mean, they say pictures worth a thousand words. It really is because uh, everybody oh. just looks so happy. I know, it's That's amazing. so nice. Yeah, no, I am sure. not by any means like that severe, like with my lung issues, but uh, but yeah. yeah. No. Well, it's int- it, it must be like really interesting to live through a medical change like that. Like yeah. I don't, I don't have any kind of chronic illness, thankfully, that like impedes my life. But I can only imagine like being told something your whole life of like this will be either the thing that kills you or yeah. it will be just the thing that like haunts you every single day. And yeah. then suddenly someone being like, it might not have to be like that mm. anymore. Yeah, it's just like, can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah. It's just like I can't imagine yeah. the relief. Like, I think it's a relief I'll never know. No, no. And, and I like, just but. well, and I just think about medical advancements that have happened. Like, I mean, a huge one is AIDS. Like, and I mean, I know that AIDS yeah. isn't cured, but they're used to just like not be medication mm, um, and, and so much stigma. And I mean, it used to just be like, if you had AIDS, you were just going to die. Mm-hmm. Like that was, you just went to the hospital to mm-hmm. die. And I mean, I mean, there isn't a cure for AIDS, but there's been so many medical advancements that it's something that people can live with yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, and not, yeah, not suffer from, but like live with and uh, live a life with like, and have partners and relationships and not have to be, you know, stigmatized because of that. Yeah. Um, and I think just stuff like that is, is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, medicine. We approve. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it. We, we're pro medicine. We on are this pro medical advancements. Yeah. <laughs> um, so John's hanging out yeah. at Fort Frontenac. He's being a cadet, learning to be an artillery man. Cool, he cool. loves it. Um, his experience wasn't that of a typical cadet, though. Um, he wrote a letter on July 18th uh, in which he claimed, explains that he has like a manservant. <laughs> and his like room looks over this beautiful river, and I was like, I don't think John McRae's experience is that of a typical uh, artillery cadet. <laughs> in I Kingston. think John McRae is very elite in the he, cadet life. He comes from a little bit of money, I think. <laughs> Must. <laughs> well, we've got a we've got a doctor brother. He is a doctor mm-hmm. eventually. And then the sister. Mary's good. Mary's good. <laughs> so she's taken care of. So they're not putting any money towards her. Um, <laughs> not, so, anymore. Uh, not anymore. Jules, Julia, Stephanie. <laughs> Whatever her name is. John eventually took a year off from school, partly to deal with his asthma, but also to teach at the Agricultural College in Guelph. When John returned to his university studies, he graduated from the University of Toronto with his Bachelor of Arts in Natural Sciences in 1894, and then he entered the brand new Faculty of Medicine. What are natural sciences? Is that just like 
I think that's like stuff. biology. Okay, but like biology. Like sciences that are not mm, like a organic physics. So like not yeah. physics. Yeah. <laughs> not I think, engineering. I think it would be like biochem, biology, cool, cool. things that, that are related to humans. Yeah. Um, and when he was doing his BA, they don't have a faculty of medicine yet. Right. And so as soon as he's done, they found one and he joins. So I think he probably would have been studying medicine from the get-go if he had the opportunity to. Right. John graduated with his MD in 1898, winning the gold medal as top student in his class. Following a brief internship at the Toronto General Hospital, he joined a large contingent of top-notch Toronto medical graduates sent by Wright and J.E. Graham, professor of clinical medicine, to study with North America's foremost medical educator. So the Canadian-born doctor and then later Sir William Osler had transformed John Hopkins into the leading medical school and teaching hospital on the continent. And he would go on in 1905 to become Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford. John's brother Thomas, who had graduated from Toronto originally, uh, remained at Hopkins as Osler's assistant resident and eventually became one of his close colleagues. So John kind of has like an in with with John Hopkins, and so he goes and works there uh, for a brief period of time. He spends several months working with Osler before beginning a fellowship in pathology at McGill University in September 1899. Okay. So now he's back in Canada. He's back. He's back. Good man. His studies were soon interrupted by the outbreak of the Boer War in mid-October. Believing that it was his duty to fight, he again took a year off, this time to lead the Guelph contingent of the Royal Canadian Artillery on an active service in South Africa. So for those of us who aren't history majors, what is the Boer War? I don't know what you're talking about. So that's where Sam Steele fought. He went to South Africa. So it's the South African War. Okay. Um, And this is pre-World War II? This is pre-World War One, so this pre-World is like... Pre-World War I, I mean, yeah. Nine, yeah, sorry. I think it's 18... Yeah, 1899 to 1902. Okay. Um, and Canada was involved in that? Yeah, so that's okay. like the first war that Canada fights as an independent nation. Really? Like, we fight as a contingent of the British Army, yeah. but we rep- we are represented as Canada mm-hmm. there. Okay. So... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Sam Steele fights there... Um, it's, it's largely a war between British colonists and the Boer, who are the Dutch descendants in South Africa. Okay. Um, and it's kind of the fallout of that war that okay. results in apartheid in South Africa. Right. So, so Canada Canada's <laughs> fighting with the Allies. We are fighting with the British, which... There's not really a good side in the okay. Boer War. Okay. Uh, but the British are really the good side in colonist wars, so... <laughs> You know, um, oh. but this is his first He's experience. out there. Yeah, he's, he's out there. <laughs> um, he served with distinction and he was a popular officer. He was quickly promoted to captain and then to major. In one incident, John nearly drowned while crossing a stream on horseback. Crap. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> not good. It's like, I almost got shot. It's like, yeah, well, I almost drowned <laughs> while riding a horse. I just imagine that river. the horse just keeps getting lower and lower and he's just like on it waiting. And that's like how he almost drowns and he just keeps going lower and lower. It's like, oh shit, like, <laughs> I should like, let's go, little buddy. Like, maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> it's like the, what is it? The fox and the, uh, oh, it's like that fable. It's like the fox and the frog or something. I don't know what it is. And like the, the like animal fox and the mouse fox and the mouse so the fox is like get on my back and i'll get you across the river oh. and then and the mouse is like okay and then the fox like eats it and it's about like 
Did you know that Chinese Zodiac, the order of Chinese Zodiac, is based on a tale that is kind of like which animal crossed the river first? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So like. I'm a dog. I was rat. Oh, really? I am rat. My mom and I are both dogs, which is kind of cool. Fun. Yeah. That means you're, you'd be 12. 24 uh, years 24 apart. 24 years apart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She was 24. Yes. <laughs> Generally, McRae was shocked by the cruelty and destruction of war, however, which has to be a pretty big slap in the face because like, your dad's a military man. You've been doing this your whole life and then you yeah. actually go to war and, and you're like, oh, wait, it's bad. As we discussed, he's been doing this his whole life in a pretty cushy spot. Yes, yeah, for, sure. like, for sure. And now he's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> So he returned to Canada in January 1901, where he gave a public lecture about the employment of artillery during war. Okay. Hmm. After returning to Montreal in 1901, John resumed his medical career, becoming one of the leading academic physicians of his generation with positions at McGill University and the various teaching hospitals in addition to a large private practice. So academic, doctor. So this doesn't sound like he's, like, cutting people open. This sounds like he's teaching about the theory of medicine. Oh, in terms yeah. of like you thought he was a doctor. Yeah. So he's a pathologist. Okay. So I think he more is a, more deals with like diagnoses. I right. He's not a surgeon. He's not like a surgeon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also this is like just shortly after like maybe a hundred years after anyone could be a doctor. So it's right. kind of like who knows what he's doing. You could just have been a doctor. scalpels. I, I could have been a doctor. Yeah. He's probably cut a few people open. Maybe. And Maybe some cadavers. I think you probably have to, to pass with a medical degree, right? Well, now you do, but I don't know. <laughs> Who's to say? He just sat in a room for four years and they're yeah. like, well, you're a doctor. <laughs> Becoming a doctor is just a war of attrition. Yeah. Just sitting there. He was appointed as an associate of medicine at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal and as a lecturer at the university. McRae also worked as a pathologist at Montreal General Hospital, as a doctor for the Royal Alexandra Hospital for Infectious Diseases, okay. and his own. And then he also works for his own private practice. So he's constantly working. He's also he's just yeah. like a very prolific doctor. Like yeah, I think if it hadn't been for Flanders Fields, we'd more know him. Yeah. As like this Doctor. medical genius. Well, and more, this makes more sense comparing um, medicine, medical advancements. Like he used to die from the chicken pox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. we talked about this on a previous episode that when I had the chicken pox on my third birthday, my mom invited every kid in town who hadn't had the chicken pox yet. Like yeah. it wasn't the plague. It was like, come <laughs> over, let your kid get infected. Let's all get the chicken pox. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. And now. So, like, now it's fine, but then, like, you would have died. Yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah, it's... Medicine is horrible. We've already talked about this. It's just, like, past medicine is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. The past is really bad. The past is bad. The past (laughs) sucks. Until 1911, McRae took the train once a week to the University of Vermont in Burlington, where he worked as a visiting professor of pathology. Cool, cool. So he's also out of town once a week. Out of town. Out of town. On the train. (laughs) Outgoing, he was also a popular social and literary figure with a large circle of friends. Um, he was a member of various Montreal social groups, such as the Pen and Pencil Club, where he shared his poetry. Oh, um, here go we ahead, go. Man. So Stephen Leacock and John were founding members of the University Club of Montreal. They chose Canadian architect Percy Nobbs, one of Canada's foremost architects, to design their clubhouse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I love that. It's just like, guys. <laughs> We have to have a really serious meeting. <laughs> Who's going to design the clubhouse? <laughs> it's 
a serious decision. I found a really good tree that we could put it in. <laughs> it's a bit outside town because there's not many left in Montreal. <laughs> but how old are these guys by now? <laughs> these are men in like their mid thirties. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 what's the secret knock gonna be? Oh my god, we need a secret. We knock. need a secret knock, and no. Girls, <laughs> ever. Absolutely not. Girls have cooties. Girls have cooties. And I should know, I'm a pathologist. <laughs> I diagnose that shit. <laughs> I diagnose that shit on the daily. Oh, that's funny. John occasionally published poems in the university magazine. He would publish about 30 in various magazines during his lifetime. So even like yeah. leading up to World War One, he's published poems pretty regularly. Okay. Most were written in his early 20s, including a number influenced by the tragic death from infection of a girl with whom he was in love. So we have this, like, gritty backstory for a pathologist. She probably had the chicken pox. That sounds like it's, like, like the bad plot of, like, a, 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 like, house ripoff, like the show house. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's just, like, the girl I love died of a disease that I couldn't diagnose. Uh. And now I write poems by night and doctor by day. Typical story. It's so hard. When I'm not working with heavy artillery in the war. (laughs) I'm also a veteran of war. (laughs) And I have asthma. (laughs) 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 Wheezing with love. That's going to be what it's called. (laughs) That's his first book of poetry. (laughs) Um, Also, not surprisingly, um, because of his childhood experience with severe asthma, uh, a lot of these poems were about death um, or the search for oblivion and peace after death. Oh. So he's he's a moody boy. He like he's a, a lot sad of moody, boy. Sad poems. <laughs> he's a sad boy. John also co-wrote an 878-page volume Jesus. entitled "A Textbook of Pathology for Students of Medicine." Oof. Oof. That's a long book. <laughs> he seems like the type of guy who just loves to surround himself with death in this really like morbid way. Well, no, as a pathologist at that time, like we've been talking about, most of the people he probably diagnosed were going to die. So like you're just completely maybe. surrounded by death. Like, yeah, I, I guess like if you maybe as having a chronic illness, you're just more comfortable with it. I wonder if he had like really good bedside manner. But he also know? served, yeah. did he not? As in the war, you mean? Yeah, or, yeah. No. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and then he does say in in the poem, right? Like in in, in Flanders, like he talks pretty. He, he adds a lot of detail to the way he describes like what yeah. death looks like in Flanders fields. Yeah. So maybe it's like that he had seen yeah. death before, so he just wanted to like he just got obsessed with it. He's you know? very honest about. Well, it. you know, and I yeah, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> There's earlier. something Sorry. to be said. There I don't is know a, what it there is. is well, I don't know. But in the poem, you're right, Connor. There, like, is there's a line that I mean, even as a kid, like, I could really. It's one of the first things I read that really resonated, and I could visually see, even though it wasn't a real thing. Which is, he talks about uh, the torch and like to you from failing yeah. hands we throw. Yeah. And and it's it's you know obviously a dead person can't like kind of like pass like that knowledge or something on mm-hmm. yeah. to you, but you can learn from that experience and like carry that on. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, go. there you go. Maybe yeah. he's got a death complex, <laughs> but it, I think it's Dude's also, got some issues. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think his backstory adds a lot to the poem because oh, yeah. it's like, it's like, Oh wow. Like this, it, it's not 
only the culmination of like his experience in the first world war. It's this like culmination of a life experience of Mm -hmm. like, I have been, I've suffered from a chronic illness my whole life. I've served in the Boer war. I work as a medical physician. I I see death a lot. Mm -hmm. And this is like a new experience for me. And like for this to be impacting me in the way it is, like I'm probably the person most prepared for something like this and I'm nowhere near prepared for the level of devastation that I've witnessed. Yeah. Yeah. But in 1910... um, (laughs) Ooh, turn of the century. Well, not turn of the century. We're we're in a new century. We're in a new century. 20th century. Governor General Earl Grey invited John to be the on-duty physician for a canoe expedition to Hudson's Bay and beyond. There's a Coast Guard ship named after him, the Earl, the Earl Grey, Grey, here in Halifax. Cool. Yeah. It's also yeah, over at um, the Bedford Institute, the BIO, the Bedford Institute of Oceanography. Nice. Yeah, it's Amazing. a big it's a big boat. <laughs> it's a big boat. Well, he's yeah. only working on a canoe right now. Yeah, with the original, <laughs> the, the OG, OG Earl, Earl Grey. Grey. <laughs> The governor wanted to establish a new rail link to a northern port to more easily transport wheat from the prairies. Okay. So he's in town and he's just like, what? And so why is John McRae like, oh, they need a doctor. Oh, me? Pick me. He's a man of adventure. Oh my God. He's like, I've been to South Africa. Now it's time for canoe expeditions. I almost drowned last time (laughs) I was in the river. (laughs) Not this time. I've learned my lesson. Don't take horses in rivers. Take canoes. Uh, (laughs) He's learning. He's He's learning. learning. About 30-something now. Yeah. You don't get it. You don't get it. Gray's group of 38 men, including 23 Cree guides, traveled for two weeks from Norway House on Lake Winnipeg to York Factory on Hudson's Bay, where the guides were left. The remaining 15 men made the last four weeks of the trip aboard the ice-breaking freight and passenger steamer, the Earl Grey. Oh, okay. Aboard which they traveled south to Prince Edward Island and then to Quebec City. It's not the same boat. It's probably <laughs> but, uh, not the same boat. But, but they're like, hey, we yeah. named it for yeah, you. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. While making the rail line did not prove to be feasible, the trip provided John with ample opportunity to observe the lives of Canada's indigenous peoples and recorded the information in written word and notebook sketches. During the trip, John entertained the group with his storytelling. He met another writer, Lucy Maud Montgomery, Ah. when the Earl Grey's steamship anchored in Prince Edward Island, and the Governor General was uh, a huge fan of Anna Green Gables, so they had to stop. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Just love that girl. He's just like the original tourist. They're yeah. like, oh my, my god. god. I love Anne. <laughs> I just that girl with the red hair and the braids. Oh, it gets me. And that Gilbert. Oh my god. At this time she probably hasn't written the books after. So he's probably like, but does she end up with Will Gilbert? They, won't what they? happens? <laughs> and Lucy's just like, uh men. Yeah, she's like did you not get the message yeah. of my book? <laughs> Have you not <laughs> that I'm annoyed by you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when Britain declared war against Germany on the 4th of August, 1914, John McRae was on, the sh- on a ship bound for England on a rare holiday from his heavy work schedule. Whew. Instead of taking the holiday, uh, upon his <laughs> arrival, he rushed to offer his services to the army. So he learns that there's a war. He's like, Get me somewhere where I can participate. I gotta go. Yeah, so he's like one of the first Canadian enlistees. Wow. When he was 41 years old. um, Oof. 
Yep, and he had he had resigned from the military ten years before, so he hasn't been um, participating in the militias. The he's way he not before. young. No, he's not a he's especially not a young guy. in the early 1900s. Like this is you're kind of on the cusp of <laughs> like I think the general general rule was that they would initially only accept from 18 to 45. So like he's well, I was gonna say he's well past like the times middle age. Um, yeah. You don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think people are you living. You probably live to your like 60s at yeah. this point. Yeah. And he's in his 40s. Like, yeah. He's yeah. got a sense of duty. He's, yeah. yeah. He's, he is a very loyal. I think he definitely has that like Victorian sense of like, yeah. this is what a man does. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that drives him in a lot of ways. Um, and so he is a bit older. And so they don't want him as an artillery officer because okay. that's what he was serving. As in right. the war. But he's a doctor now. But they do offer him the position of a doctor. Yeah. So they're like, that would be way more helpful, actually. And he's <laughs> like, ah, oh, <laughs> I want to fire big guns. He's like, I want to blow stuff up, man. You don't understand. And they're like, no, you're a healer, John. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to heal, heal people, but what if I want to murder? <laughs> Just for a break. <laughs> John used his influence with a friend from the South African Boer War, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. Edward Morrison, whose middle name is Whipple. <laughs> oh, man. Is he a doctor? Uh, he's a lieutenant colonel. It doesn't say he's a doctor, oh, though. Because whi- a Whipple is a surgery. And I was like, if he invented the Whipple, that's pretty cool. That's the name of a surgery. What's a Whipple? A Whipple? Uh, do okay. we want to get into it? So, <laughs> to be do. completely honest, I only know what a Whipple is from Grey's Anatomy. But I know it's a common thing that happens Earl in general Grey's surgery. Anatomy. Oh, the original. no. <laughs> um, but uh, but I know it's like an abdominal surgery that the general surgeons do. And it's mm. like they do it when they're in first year. So it's not that hard. Gotcha. So not, I don't not know what it is. Not super invasive, maybe. So maybe if he's. Yeah, it doesn't seem super invasive. OK. <laughs> they let George do it in season one. And I mean, like. <laughs> oh, my George in season one. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um <sighs> So with, with due to this connection, John quickly becomes a major and then a brigade surgeon, um, which unofficially made him second in command of the first brigade of Canadian field artillery in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. So he was happy. He felt involved. He, he, he <laughs> you know, he got skyrocketed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, John returned to Canada, to Valcartier, Quebec, uh, to prepare to serve at the front. Before he left Montreal, McRae took his personal belongings to a storage facility, wrote to his family in Guelph, and visited the William Naughton and Son photographic studio, which is where he sat for the portrait that we looked at earlier. So that's like the most famous photo of of John McRae. Yeah. That center part, though. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's a a choice. Yeah. That didn't have to be that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's 41 and he's busy he's that a doctor that was a life choice he oh. doesn't have time to be stylish well I was gonna say if he's not busy he would've just let it fly where it may but that was a <laughs> that was a plaster this 15 hair 15 minutes head. of his life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So John was sent to Europe with the rest of more than the 31,000 Canadian volunteers in the 1st Canadian Division. The division arrived in France in February 1915 after a brief training period in England. By this time, the fighting on the Western Front had stabilized into a war of attrition. In April 1915, after a short taste of trench life in a relatively quiet sector of the front, the 1st Canadian Division was ordered into Ypres Salient, the bulge at the front of the lines on Flanders Plains, east of the ancient Belgian city of Ypres. In, it, this would be the first major action the Canadian Division and John would see. Right. 
So the Ypres uh, salient was a dangerous place for Allied defenders. It was surrounded on three sides by enemy forces, and the horrors of war were made instantly apparent to the Canadians. The trench works that John and the rest of the Canadians were moved into were inadequate and abhorred. They were shallow and poorly constructed. They were not designed with drainage, and often shelling prevented soldiers from leaving the trenches. So this meant that the Ypres trenches were filled with shallow pools of water, human excrement, and littered with unburied corpses of soldiers from previous fighting. Uh, So I'm feeling like trench foot was just (laughs) rampant. Trench foot also just like... There's a dead body oh, right PTSD. here, and I can't, I Trauma. can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really interesting, like the stories you hear from like people who served there, because like the only way they deal with it is like black comedy. Like, there's yeah. a really famous story from Ypres where there's a soldier that was sort of buried, um, but their arm was like sticking out from the bottom of the trench because they can't leave the trenches because they'll get shelled. So they have to be buried in the floor of the trenches and the arm would be sticking out. And so every morning, every soldier would go by and like shake the hand of this dead guy. And they'd be like, good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. (laughs) Like, I I honestly can't fathom how you mentally deal with that every single day. No. And that's the least stressful part of your day because you might get shot today. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the Uh, least stressful thing is that you're living with dead bodies. Yeah. So the Second Battle of Ypres began on April 22nd. That day, German forces decided to test a new weapon, chlorine gas. Chemical weapons had been outlawed by international treaties before the First World War. Nevertheless, the Germans released more than 160 tons of the gas from thousands of canisters arranged along the German lines. The Canadians, and especially the French-Algerian troops manning the trenches to their left, watched a mysterious yellow-green cloud appear first over no man's land between the opposing armies and then drifted with the wind southward toward the allied lines. The heaviest part of the gas cloud hit the Algerians, the chlorine burning their throats and causing Mm. their lungs to fill with foam and mucus, effectively drowning the men in their own fluids. So the Canadians watched in shock and horror as the suffocating Algerians broke from their lines, many of them fleeing Uh, toward them in panic, leaving a six-kilometer hole in the front line on the Canadians' left flank. Germans attempted to move into these positions and encircle the 1st Canadian Division. However, Canadian and British battalions managed to desperately fight off the advance over the following hours with the assistance of isolated groups of French and Algerians. The next several days were marked by counterattacks and engagements trying to fight off the German assault and hold the line. On April 24th, a second gas attack was launched and it hit the Canadian forces head on. While some fled, uh, others tried to protect themselves by burying their faces in the crevices of trenches. However, chlorine gas is heavier than air and therefore it tends to pool in these kinds of crevices. But many of the others survived by holding urine-soaked cloths and handkerchiefs over their mouths and noses after being instructed to do so by medical officers like John McRae, who identified the gas as chlorine. The 24th of April attack opened serious gaps in the Canadian lines and forced the retreat of several battalions. But overall, the battered 1st Division held the ground outside Ypres buying time until French and British reinforcements could be brought in. After four days of intense fighting, the Canadians were mostly relieved on the 25th of April. More than 6,500 Canadians were killed, wounded, or captured in the Second Battle of Ypres. Um, Crazy. And that's their first engagement. Like, that's the first time they see any conflict in the First World War. And I think Ypres is pretty prominent in the Canadian zeitgeist of, like, what the First World War means. Yeah. And it meant, like... 
being put in a situation where you were wholly unprepared for what was on the other side mm-hmm. of no man's land. John, as a newly promoted lieutenant colonel, treated the wounds of soldiers at the Second Battle of Ypres. John was also gassed, causing serious damage to his already weakened lungs and severely worsening his asthma. Um, But he continued to work and dress wounds at the Essex Farm dressing station near Ypres, which was no more than a bunker with a dirt floor and with light provided only by lanterns in the doorway. John was particularly affected by the death of his young friend, Lieutenant Alexis Helmner, who was killed by a German shell on the morning of May 2nd. Alexis was a 22-year-old civil engineer and a graduate of McGill University. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two had not known each other in Montreal, but they had a close, uh, they'd grown very close since they'd come, because I imagine it's like, oh, we're right. from the same place. Yeah. <laughs> like, we know similar people. Yeah. Um, do you know Joe from the bar down the street? Of course <laughs> I do. I'm 22 yeah. and a civil engineer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we both live with engineers. We Say have three a, other things uh, about We have a me. real opinion about yeah, engineers. Go, go. <laughs> we both live with engineers. I was missing out. His remains were gathered by fellow soldiers and wrapped in an army blanket and buried in the nearby Essex Farm Cemetery. John was the officer present and therefore needed to officiate his own friend's burial. Alexis's grave was marked with a simple cross. And the Don't next- ask me to officiate your burial, please. Oh, you're not going to outlive me, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, that's like the only way to answer that. It is. Wow. It is. No, good for you. Good for for you. I love you so much. I love you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> the next morning, John wrote a 15-line poem, which he entitled In Flanders Fields. The exact circumstances of his writing are not known, though there are several popular accounts. Apparently, it only took him like 20 minutes to write the poem, Despite being surrounded by hastily built cemeteries around the battlefield, John was inspired by the red poppies that still managed to spring forth. John called... It's all that opium. Keeps you going, keeps you growing. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what uh, the the soldiers were thinking. They were just like, it's like, should we invest? (laughs) It's like, grow up, guys. (laughs) I mean, cemetery or hear me out. John called upon the living to join the war effort so that Alexis and millions of others were not dying in vain. Mm. John sent a copy of the poem to the London magazine, The Spectator, though it was initially rejected. In December, John tried again to have the poem published, and he sent a copy to the British magazine, Punch. In Flanders Field appeared on the December 8th edition, tucked away in the bottom corner of the left-hand page without John's name next to it. Wow. Nevertheless, the public did take notice of the poem. So the success of Flanders Fields is largely kind of wrapped up in two things. So for one, kind of as we've already discussed, the poem like definitely captures a certain mood that the British public was slowly aligning with because it's 1915. And so there's no longer that first year of like, this will be done quick. This is going to be like this glorious thing. And and we're all going to like celebrate the this like great defeat yeah. of the German army. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. It's been recognized that war isn't fun anymore. Yeah. Like, like it's not a happy time. War is not fun and it's affecting all of us. Yeah. Like we have a home front now. Like yeah. we have to like change the way we live to support this war. Yeah. Um, and also like you're hearing news about like gas attacks and Zeppelin raids and yeah. even like unarmed passenger liners like the Lusitania are being attacked yeah. like every aspect of your life is being infiltrated by this war and at this point like multiple people there are multiple 
casualties that people are hearing about at home on the home front. You know, it's like your, yeah. it's like your front next door's, you know, nephew died. Well, and even worse, like your brother died. Even worse, the British in particular, like a big tactic for them was like, if you sign up on the same day, we'll put all your buddies in the same company. It's going to yeah. be like you and all your friends. And yeah. so if a company goes down, that's like a whole neighborhood yeah. gone. Yeah. Of all their young men. Well, I know that in World War Two they wouldn't let brothers um, be in the same groups in yeah. most parts of England. So, like, you couldn't go with your family because you couldn't lose like a like two older sons and like a father would all have to go separately because yeah. you couldn't like lose everybody for your family because right. you know from World War One you learned that. Yeah, they they learned like you'll you'll make new friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. In Flanders Field was soon being memorized and copied into letters, set to music, and then translated into multiple languages. So oh. it's very quickly picked up upon. The second reason that the poem becomes so popular is because of the third verse, which starts with the line, take up our quarrel with yeah. the foe. It's the one about the tor- falling torch. Yeah. Um, this stanza, unlike the previous two stanzas, and unlike a lot of the poems which had been written up to this point, are not memorials they're calls to action yeah so they're begging the reader to pick up the torch join the war effort and not allow the death of these soldiers lying in flanders field to be in vain this sentiment was latched onto not by people but by organizations so you have uh particularly the campaign in the the campaign to get the united states into the war yeah so they'll use this stanza and like british propaganda targeted at americans and it's like you're like you're letting us down yeah. by like not joining and picking up the torch. Yeah. Um, so lines of the poem would appear in promotional materials for recruiting, raising money, comforting widows, um, and it would attack both profiteers and pacifists who are trying to either profit from the war or sit on the sidelines. Yeah. In total, the poem uh, is estimated to have raised $400 million for the war effort. Wow. Um, it was also in these campaigns inspired by Flanders Field that the poppy begins to be a symbol for the war and yeah. commemorating the dead. Yeah. By the time in Flanders Field was published, John had moved to the number three Canadian General Hospital, which was near the English Channel. There were more than a thousand wounded and dying soldiers at the hospital. The hospital was staffed by friends and colleagues from McGill. Some hardly recognized the exhausted man who joined them, speaking of a drastic change in his temperament. Um, And they said that it was like an icon had been broken, which is just like... That's devastating. Which is also like he's an icon to these people. Yeah. And they're just watching this like whole event. Just the shell of a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Demanding. Which uh, sounds like World War One to me. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Sounds like a common experience. Yeah. Demanding the highest possible standards of service to the sick and wounded soldiers. He insisted on living in a tent like his comrades at the front and had to be ordered into a heated hut when the winter badly affected his health. He felt the war intensely. Every casualty that came into the hospital was felt by John. So he's just this like huge and devastating. Yeah. He's just a nice guy. <laughs> he's just a nice man. He just wanted to write poems. He just wanted to do yeah. good. He just know? wanted to do good. Just wanted yeah. to do good in the world. And now he's here. Yeah. Trying to do good. Yeah. Trying. By late 1917, after the disaster of Passchendaele in Belgium and the collapse of the Russians, the morale of the British army was at its lowest. Early in 1918, a friend described John as silent, moody, and asthmatic, which... (laughs) That's how people describe me, too. It's basically basically my hinge bio. (laughs) 
an exciting life. Uh, you know. <laughs> what was it again? What was That's it again? An exciting friend. Silent, out. moody, and asthmatic. So, but I think it's kind of two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Silent, moody, and asthmatic. I just like the idea that he's like he's so quiet and moody. He's also like still <laughs> asthmatic. Like, why hasn't he gotten yeah. over that? Yeah, like, that's he's true, always actually. been asthmatic. Yeah, what the uh, hell? You can travel the whole world. You worked in all types of industries, and you still asthmatic. You <laughs> still got the asthma. Why haven't you gotten over that yet? Interesting. <laughs> so just let it go, John. <laughs> yeah. Just breathe right. Oh, we get it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> By this point, John had provided medical care for troops in the British Expeditionary Force for three long years. On the 24th of January, 1918, he was appointed consulting physician to the first British Army, the first Canadian to be given the honor. However, he did not live to appreciate the distinction. Four days later, he died of pneumonia and meningitis at the Uh. age of 45. He was buried with full military honors at the cemetery in Wimereau, France. Uh, Bonfire, his beloved horse, was part of the funeral procession. <laughs> so I guess he like had a new relationship with horses. <laughs> after, after he after almost drowned. We're not drowning on horses <laughs> anymore. Um, and General Arthur Curry was in attendance. Nursing oh. sisters found a few poppies to put on McCray's grave that were un- uh, because the, the winter was unseasonably warm, apparently, that oh. day. And so there mm. were a few poppies that bloomed. So contrary to popular belief, John knew that his poem had become very popular all over the world, uh, and he was very pleased with the acclaim it received. However, little attention was paid to the other poems that he had written, such as The Anxious Dead in 1917. That rarely happens with artists, though. Like, with with art, like, especially, I think, in that time, like, in poetry, with poetry and... uh, and books and and paintings and art like you it's usually the guy dies and then it becomes really famous so it is cool that he got to kind of have a moment in that uh in that kind of bask a bit in that yeah have that awareness of of that you've changed people you've affected people yeah and i think it's your art because it became like commercial like it was a Mm. it was a commercial poem which i think is interesting like i i find it interesting that it's lost that reputation I, I, I guess still I guess think we, are, it, we aren't trying I to would, profit anymore. I would it, say that I still feel like it as a commercial piece of art in that it is, you know, it's a poem that you associate with Remembrance Day and veterans and the poppy, which it's is branded. the entire, it's branded. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that it definitely is still a piece of commercial art. Um, yeah. Such as, uh, such as like Sarah McLaughlin's In the Arms of an Angel is associated with SPCA commercials. Um, there you go. <laughs> it's art that, you know, you hear it or you think of it and it immediately takes you to a cause. Cats. <laughs> <laughs> But in 1919, the year after his death, the public's interest in all things related to him was reflected in the brisk sale of Sir Andrew McPhail's collection of John's poetry, which was published with a short biography. Very cool. Today, In Flanders Field is one of the most well-known poems in the world. John's birthplace is now a National Historic Site. In 2015, John was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame for his valuable contributions to the field of pathology. Also in 2015, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the writing in Flanders Fields, a statue of John created by sculptor Ruth Abernathy was unveiled in Ottawa. A duplicate statue is within sight of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, his family's place of worship, and looks out over his hometown of Guelph, Ontario. The red poppy remains a symbol of sacrifice and remembrance in many parts of the world today. It definitely does. And that's the story of John McRae. 
It's not happy. <laughs> it's not happy, but it is. It's a hero's it journey. It is interesting. Yeah, yeah it's right. a it's a journey, and it's a uh, yeah. Yeah, I I, it, I find it interesting that like that's a Canadian icon I can get behind. <laughs> that's a Canadian icon I can get behind. Yeah, I he think, deserves a minute. <laughs> yeah, and he's I, a part of our heritage for sure. And I think it's interesting that he is someone who I don't think would see himself as a poet. Like, I don't think if you had asked him before he had written this poem or before he even went to the First World War, I think he'd be like, I'm a doctor. Yeah. I'm a veteran. Yeah. And as a side thing, he did start I a, write poems. He did start a club, though. With he, a club. He was. He, he did. So I don't know, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, yeah. How do you think he describes himself? You know, a man who, like, switches so many different things in life can't go by a title. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Fair. He's just John McCray. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, this very special episode to commemorate Remembrance Day, November 11th. Uh, this year, as we mentioned, there might not be services or ceremonies held, but it's always nice to take a moment to remember those who have uh, who have sacrificed for us in war. And this week, we'd like to direct people towards the Royal Canadian Legion and the National Poppy Fund. You can reach them at www.legion.ca. And we would also like to thank Kanar Bell so much for coming on to the podcast. It was so lovely to have you with us today. And we really encourage everyone to go see Kanar live. It's even better in person. Yeah. Uh, if you get on Pickford and Black this Thursday, November 12th, you can see Let Your Soul Talk live. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate y'all having me. It was nice to hear a Heritage Minute. Yeah. You can come down and watch the wonderful Kanar Bell and hang out with your favorite Minute women. Mm. Who couldn't want more? Well, who would want more? We'll have Rachel to have you. On again for a more like peppy. Yes. <laughs> One where we can have it's some all more good. laughs. Sometimes, you know, it's needed sometimes, these yeah. episodes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming of on. Of course. No, I appreciate it. And actually, we have a bit of a favor to ask Kanar. So it would mean so much if you could recite John McRae's In Flanders Field for us to close out the episode. Hey, because of how he led his life, I will do so. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scars heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. <laughs>